All right, get your Bibles. I know it's hard to believe, but we're actually going to Mark chapter 2. Can you believe it? Lightning immediately. <laughs> so we're trying to follow in Mark's footsteps and do this fast <laughs> for us. But yeah, we're going to actually get 12 verses in today. Amen? I don't know. You're not going to know what to do with yourselves, are you? That's almost half a chapter, for sure. <laughs> All right, are you there? You got it open? All right, let's read this. I'll read it and uh, you follow along in there. Chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel. Um, let me back up to 45 of 1. He says, however, he went out and began, this is a guy, to proclaim claim it freely after Jesus told the leper not to say anything, and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer enter the city but was outside in the deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. So now Jesus' ministry is just, just too much population. Everybody knows this guy disobeyed Jesus, I suppose, by, by telling. Jesus told him not to, and word traveled, and he could not minister in Capernaum anymore. So he's on the hills, but he's still ministering. We do see from some of the other Gospels that he goes across the Sea of Galilee, um, and then he comes back, and that's where we pick it up here. So there's a, some distance of time and ministry between chapter 145 and 2.1. And again, he, Jesus, entered Capernaum after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. Now, if you got your own Bible, please underline this, this whole, sent, this whole phrase and he preached the word to them. That is not an afterthought. That is the message. He preached the word to them. That's what he came to do. Don't miss it. Then, as, as he's preaching, um, then they came to him bearing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they, <coughs> sorry, when the crowd, they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So they had broken through. When they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Can you picture this? There's a picture of it. We'll see in a minute. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? By the way, if you've got your own Bible and you like to write in it, right next to that verse, they were right. Half right. Verse 8, but immediately, there's that word again, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they had reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed, and what? Fair question. Which one's easier to say? But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise. 
Take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. May God apply his word to our hearts today. All right, amen. You can go to that next screen. I want them to see that picture. I don't know how clear that is to you. It's a great artist rendition of that man being lowered. November 22, 1963. Anybody remember what happened on that date? Yeah. It's a date remembered by most of us as the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Any of you remember where you were? I wasn't here yet. However, that was not the only famous person to die on that date. Two famous authors also died on that date. Do you know? You impress me. That's my son, by the way. Um, students of history will remember that two renowned authors passed away just about an hour before Kennedy and within minutes of each other. And they were C.S. Lewis and Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World in 1932. All three deaths were noteworthy, but one attracted far more publicity than the other. In our reading today, we find three miraculous works by Jesus that happened at this house in Capernaum. But usually only one of these gets the most attention, right? So we'll try to examine all three today and see how they're interconnected. That's what I want to do. So number one in your outline, if you will, today, and there'll be, I made you a generous outline. There'll be some lots to fill in if you want to in the middle. First one is the friend's confidence, verses 1 through 4. The friend's confidence. And under that, I want to take you back to verse 1 in my Bible. I'll just read it to you as you fill in. And again, he, Jesus, entered Capernaum after some days, and it heard that he was, and, and it was heard that he was in the house. If you have a different version, some other versions say, and it was noised abroad that he was home. Capernaum was his home base for his earthly ministry, that, those three years that he spent. He really made as his hometown, his home base of operations, Capernaum, specifically the house of Peter. And we, we can safely make the inference and assumption that this is Peter's house. Um, it's a very fair assumption because he stayed, we, see, we saw before, remember the first miracle uh, when he cast the demon out and then he goes home to Peter for lunch in Capernaum and everybody came to the house, same type of crowd. He comes back to, back to the house. It literally says in, his, in the house, same house. So it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty sure it's Peter's home. And Peter had a pretty good-sized home. Peter was not a poor fisherman. He had done, he had done pretty well. And we, we found the remains of Peter's house, and it's huge. He had a massive courtyard in the middle of his home that would have, would have housed several, you know, a couple hundred folks easily. Um, 
but they were way overcrowded here. So the first thing I want you to see underneath that, if you like to do a, a neat outline like Courtney, is letter A. This won't be on a screen, but you can write it in there, is the city. And the city is Capernaum. And it's interesting, it comes from two Greek words, um, Kafar, which means village, and Nahum is the last half. And it's literally Nahum's village. And Nahum is one of the minor prophets. He is in the Old Testament, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, right? And interesting, his name means comfort. So you should know that. It's, so literally, it is the village of comfort. However, Nahum's prophecy was anything but comforting if you lived in Assyria. His prophecy was nothing if not harsh as he pronounces the coming judgment of God on Assyria not too long after the great revival brought about through Jonah's reluctant obedience. Do you remember this historical account? Jonah goes, preaches a very short sermon, and, and, and the people repent. Remember this? It's not terribly long later that God, through the prophet Nahum, who means comfort, um, prophesies a very harsh message of destruction for the Assyrian people. His message could be boiled down to this. Beware, I am against you. That's the message of Nahum. And this is Nahum's village. Of course, Nahum means comfort. Of course, it would be comforting to the Israelites to know that Assyria was finally going to get judged for all their sin, right? So that's, if you want to put that piece together there. Matthew uh, chapter 9 and verse 1, jot that down, says that Jesus came to his own city. But only Mark gives us the name of the city, which is Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was the largest city on the lake because it was at a crossroads of major trade routes. It even had a customs tax office and a Roman garrison because it was a potential area of crime because there was so much action, trade, and travel. Right? So they had a Roman garrison there also to collect the money. So they had a tax station, which is going to be important next week because that's where Matthew slash Levi shows up was a tax collector. And uh, jot this down in Luke um, chapter 10 and verse 15 and plus. Let me, let me read you what, what it says. Jesus warned the city of, of Capernaum that because it had rejected the light, Jesus actually lived there. He said this, you Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to hell. And then in a parallel statement in Matthew, he warned, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend into Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained until this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable, tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than it will for you. Jesus lived in Capernaum. We're going to look at another miracle. He performed hundreds of miracles, literally, in Capernaum. They had the light of the revelation of God himself through the person of Jesus Christ, and they refused to repent and embrace the king. And Jesus said, it's not going to be a good day for you, Capernaum, when judgment day comes. I love the way that Kent Hughes sets the stage for the miracle in Capernaum that we're about to uh, take apart. He says this, Alpine hikers have told me that when 
caught in a brewing storm, they have seen the hair on their fellow hikers stand straight out from their heads like radiant crowns, while the metal frames of their backpacks glowed with an eerie neon blue light called St. Elmo's Fire. The same phenomenon has been recorded by sailors from ancient times when they would see the tops of their ship's masts covered in a ghostly aura of light. In all cases, it means the air is charged with electricity and that lightning is imminent. For the hiker, it means it's time to discard the pack and take cover. I think this image conveys something of the atmosphere in Capernaum as described in our text, Mark 12, 1 through 2. You get the idea? The city housed the king that they rejected, even with all of the miracles. Nahum pronounces God's judgment against a city that had formerly repented and then repented of its repentance. There's, the correlation is, is to be made. So Jesus has returned home, Peter's home most likely, and word spreads quickly in verse number one. They didn't even have cell phones, but it says it was heard that he was in the house, and I look at verse number two, immediately. Right? So really fast, and I see here letter B is the crowd. It's a packed house. Look, look, at, look at chapter two, or verse two. Immediately many gathered together, so there was no room to receive them, not even near the door. All right? That's the crowd. Letter C is the clarification. The last part of chapter 2, of verse 2, and he preached the word to them. Listen, miracles confirmed the message and the messenger. They never stood alone. Jesus was all about the message. The miracles were only performed to confirm who Jesus was, which was his message. Do you remember the kingdom gospel? Repent. Believe and follow. And that message is confirmed by demons being cast out. As we're going to see today, a paralytic man healed. Lepers cleansed. Demoniacs delivered. All of those miracles. Now, do you think those people had come for the message? I, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm skeptical. I've lived too long. I don't, I don't buy it. Because we know what Capernaum does eventually. And Jesus, Jesus prophesies against them. I think they came for the miracles and were willing to put up with the message to get the miracles. And isn't that just like us? We seek God's hand, not His face. That's idolatry, folks. We need to ask God to cleanse our hearts from that and give us a spirit of repentance. So the clarification is there. He preached the word to the letter D, the compassion. The compassion. Last week with the leper, we see that Jesus is moved by compassion. And this week, we see that four friends are moved by compassion. And here's a statement. Because four men cared, one man was cured. Because four men cared, one man was cured. Isn't that great? Don't we all need friends like that? Four guys are moved with compassion. They cared about their friend. And because they did, one man was cured. And by the way, I just want to say, throw this out there. Compassion that doesn't move you to action is just sentiment. Okay? If compassion doesn't make you do something, it's just a passing feeling. Not unlike heartburn. It'll bother you for a minute and go away. These guys had compassion. Letter E, I see their commitment. Their commitment. Look at verse 3. Then they came to him, these guys, 
bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. They weren't going to let the crowd stop them from getting their friend to Jesus. This is a great Sunday school story. It preaches well. And I am going to cover this, but I want you to know this is, this is like the JFK part of the deal. The most important part is what gets ignored. Even this man's healing is not the most important part. The most important part is that the servant has the power and authority to forgive sins. That's the big part. And it gets lost in this account. Um, but they did have this commitment. And, and I don't know. We can go back and undress this and try to th- figure out what it was like. We don't know why these guys brought him. I think they, they felt bad for the guy. They loved him. He was a friend. But they brought him there. And you can imagine the press of this crowd. I was getting nervous yesterday, memory, in, in the funeral. But there was no more parking. There were no more. So we actually used our balcony. Uh, this place was jam-packed out. And uh, this Peter's house is just slammed with people. They can't even get near the front door. You get this picture? Now, most houses back then and the, and the, uh, had, a, had an outside stairwell going up to the roof because they actually used their roof. It had an ever so slight pitch, just enough of a pitch for the rain to run off. But you could stand on it, and they would. And so these guys said, hey, let's, let's go up top. So they, imagine they're carrying this guy upstairs. And they get on the roof and they, probably by listening, they figure out where Jesus is and they start to take the roof apart. We find in other Gospels there, there's tiles there because, again, um, that indicated that, that Peter probably had a little bit more uh, wealth than some of the others. So they moved the tiles and they dug out the sand and the dirt and the, and the thatch that was in there. Probably had to move some, some uh, wooden structure. And you can't imagine, Jesus is underneath that preaching, teaching, and all of a sudden, stuff starts falling, right? You've got to take the Bible class off. Imagine what this is like. And who knows? The people in the crowd are probably thinking, oh, man, the roof is vibrating. Something's getting ready to happen, right? Because, again, they came to see what this, what this guy was going to do next, right? And then all of a sudden, light starts coming through. What in the world, right? And then they see more daylight, and the head pops through. And stuff gets moved, and, and as we saw in that picture there, this guy gets lowered down. We see their commitment. They refused to carry their friend back home. They were carrying him there, but they carried him to Jesus, listen, so that he could walk with them on the way home. Amen? And boy, what a walk that must have been. Right? Wow. They worked together to get this guy there. And they didn't let anything stop him. You know what I'm afraid? I'm afraid if that was us today, here's what we would do. Being good theologians. Well, brother, it's just not God's will today. I mean, look. Here, let me hold you up. You look. You tell me. It's not your day. But we're going to pray about it, and we'll find him again. We'll get you to him. Not these guys. These guys said, nope. We are not carrying this joker home. <laughs> we drug him all the way here, and we are not taking him home. Right? And I'm going to get on a roof and tear the roof apart, and I just can't imagine 
him being dropped down right in Jesus' lap. So here's number two. I, I titled the message, Friends, Faith, and Forgiveness. Number two is the men's faith in verse number five. Last part of verse four. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which a paralytic was lying. So they had to break through the house, to break through the roof. And I don't want to spiritualize this because that's not what it's meant. This is history. But you know what? Sometimes we need to break through for other people, don't we? The old timers used to call it praying through. We need to pray through. You all got some people in your life. Can I just, can I be honest with us today? We got family members are going to hell. Some of you got kids. Some of us have kids that are headed straight to the devil's hell. And we are numb. We are numb. We need to break through whatever it takes. We have a whatever it takes mentality to get them face to face with Jesus before they're face to face with him. They, Jesus needs to be their redeemer, not their judge. And that might be on us. It's our job to get them there. We need to wake up as a church. So we see the men's faith, number two in verse number five. We see their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And I had to look up that word, see, or someone, Jesus saw their face. And it's interesting. It means to recognize. Jesus recognized their faith. Whose faith? All, that's it, Tom. All five. Not four. Five. I can't have faith for somebody else. But, brother, I can, I can bring them. Amen? And get them in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus will give them the faith. Jesus recognizes saving faith in them. John MacArthur said this, The statement seeing their faith seems to indicate more than just a belief in Jesus' ability to heal. The forgiveness that the Lord granted indicates a genuine repentant faith. This man, along with his friends, must have believed that Jesus was the one who offered salvation to those who repent. They had saving faith. And what does that mean? And what Jesus preached? Repentance of sin Belief. What were they to believe? That Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And that they were to believe into Christ and they were to follow. So this commitment was there. Spurgeon said this, Christ has eyes with which he can see faith. You and I can't see it, but he can. When he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins be forgiven thee. This was going to the very root of his disease. Jesus knew what the man really uh, ailed. He was palsied in spirit as well as in body. And Christ removed the root of his disease by forgiving his sin. Isn't that something? Jesus can see faith and he can still see it today. Number three, the servant's authority to forgive. That's the last part of verse five. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. They came for a physical healing. But Jesus gave them something far more permanent. Amen? <clears throat> they came for what they could get. Help for their friend. But the help that he needed went far beyond 
the restoration of the muscles in his legs. Amen. He needed a resurrection from a dead spirit to a new one in Christ. And Jesus knew that. He knew what this man's greatest problem was, and it wasn't the fact that he couldn't walk. Remember, Jesus preached the message first and foremost, the kingdom gospel. Repent, believe, and follow. The miracles merely validated the message, never the other way around. We must see the deeper, greater soul need. Otherwise, we are just dressing up people for hell. And a lot of evangelistic efforts do exactly that. Margaret, social worker Margaret Sangster, not to be confused with Margaret Sanger, Margaret Sangster told her colleagues about seeing a young boy in an urban ghetto who appeared little more than a bit of twisted human flesh. He had been struck by a car several months earlier and had not received proper medical attention. Although he was not part of her caseload, she took the boy to an orthopedist to perform surgery on his legs. Two years later, the boy walked into Sangster's office without crutches. His recovery was complete. Margaret recalled that as a two embrace, she thought, if I accomplish nothing else in my life, I've made a real difference with at least this one. Sangster told her colleagues, this was all several years ago now. Where do you think that boy is today? They suggested that he might be a teacher, a physician, or a social worker. With deep emotion, she responded, no. He is in the penitentiary for one of the foulest crimes a human can commit, she said. Then she replied, I was instrumental in teaching him how to walk again, but there was no one to teach him where to walk. Fixing this man's leg is a side issue. He had a dead spirit. He was dead in his trespasses and sins, which is why he was crippled. You see, his sin made him crippled? Well, ultimately... My brother Andy can't walk because of the fall. Do you get it? The reason there are paralytics and people like Andy who can't walk is because of sin. Even Jesus Christ came to him and said one day, who sinned that this man was born blind? Him or his parents? Right? They wanted a direct line of accountability. Jesus said neither. Him or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. Right? Andy's biggest problem is not that he can't walk physically, but that he had a dead spirit. That when the Lord Jesus Christ sent him to the Juddle family, the master healer cured my brother. Amen? And one day, there's a little song that my son-in-law plays, and I love it, especially now I think of my dad and Jim. But so I'm going to stroll over heaven with you. We're going to change them words when we get there with Andy because we're going to be chasing him all over heaven. Him and this guy are going to be running road races in heaven, right? But that's not his, his problem was his heart. God fixed that. Lord, help us to tell of your love for mankind, a love for the sin-sick, the broken, the blind. And help them to see by the way that we live the wholeness of life that you long to give. And I want to tell you something. Those people you love that are on their way to hell, 
Here's the reality. When a man is really anxious to be saved, he will not be ashamed to be helped. Amen? We need to pray that God will wake him up and make him anxious. And maybe that starts with us. All right, letter B in that one is the scribe's scandal in verses 6 through 9. So he says, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning and are thinking to themselves. You ever think to yourself? Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They were half right. But I want to tell you something. Being half right makes you totally wrong. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And it's interesting, it says they thought to themselves. So there's more than one scribes there. And they're all thinking the same thing. You see it? They're all thinking the same thing. They're not talking to each other. But because they're experts, they're theological experts, they know the Tanakh. They know the law of God. They know the Old Testament. They know the revelation from Jehovah that only God can forgive sins. And this man just said, son, literally is technon. My child is literally the word there. It's beautiful, loving, fatherly term that Jesus uses to this man. My child, your sins are forgiven you. And they're all thinking the same thing. Jot this down, but it's found in uh, Luke 5, 17. I think I've got it on the screen. <laughs> Excuse me. Here's what it says. And the real reason I bring this in, I want you to see what's going on here. Now it happened, this is the same event, on a certain day that he was teaching, and that the Pharisees uh, uh, and teachers of the law sitting by, look at this, who had come out of every town of Galilee, that's the north province, and Judea, the southern province, and Jerusalem. How far and how fast had this word spread? Jesus' popularity and the news is spreading like wildfire that the religious leaders, even from Judea and Jerusalem and all around, they're all now coming to Jesus and they're sitting there to watch and to listen to what this man is saying. And it appears at this time in his ministry uh, Jesus is becoming a problem to them. They're not sure, but the people are talking about, at a minimum, he's taking the attention off of them and they don't like it because he's teaching with authority and they're just quoting people. But he's teaching like he knows what he's talking about. So they're checking him out. But boy, when he says this, son, your sins be forgiven you, he's like, okay, now we know. This guy's a blasphemer. Literally, the word blasphemy means to speak against God. And I'm going to tell you something. They're right and they're wrong. The only one that can forgive sins is who? God. Why is that true? Oh, and look at this. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. That's a bad translation. Literally, the way it plays out is the power of the Lord was present with Christ to heal. So, So God's Spirit was enabling Christ to perform some miracles here to, to justify His message. Do you know why only God can forgive sin? Why is it that only God can forgive sins? Anybody know? How come only God can forgive sins? That's exactly right. Because it's Him we sin against. This will come up there. Uh, Psalm 51, 4. This is David after getting caught. They call it Bathsheba Gate. Here's what he says. 
This used to baffle me a little bit. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yeah, you did. But I'm thinking to myself, your math is wrong. Because there's a guy named Uriah you sinned against, and you certainly sinned against Bathsheba. Right? There's a bunch of people you sinned against. David said, no, primarily I sinned against God. All sin, listen to me, you should, you should know this is good theology, you must know this. All sin is a sin towards God. When we sin, we sin primarily against God. We break God's law, do not commit adultery. We break God's law, do not murder. David had no right to take Bathsheba's uh, purity, and he had no right to take Uriah's life. And he says, when he finally confronted, against you and you only have I sinned. I did evil in your sight. Only God can forgive sin because sin is ultimately committed against God. Here's the next one. I want you to see Jesus' perception. Letter C, verse 8. This is interesting. So this man speaking blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Isn't that interesting? They were right. See, they should have made the connection. They didn't. Verse 8. But immediately, there's that word again. When Jesus, and underline this, perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Okay. So he perceives. How does Jesus know what they were thinking? Be careful here. The Sunday school answer is because he's God. No. That is not true. He knew what they were thinking the same way that on a rare occasion you and I will know what someone's thinking. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. Jesus did not cheat his way through his human existence. He relied on everything that you and I have available to us to rely upon. Jesus never used his deity as a shortcut. He set that aside. He perceived where? In his spirit, which was one with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals to Jesus' spirit what these guys are thinking. By the way, Jesus is no dummy. Put the deity to the side for a minute. Jesus is no dummy. He knows, first of all, who these guys are. He knows why they're there just as an intelligent human being. Right? And he knows that when I say, son, your sins are forgiven you, I know what they're going to think. So how does that work? It's the same way Elizabeth knows what I'm thinking. Right? Half the time she knows exactly what I'm thinking. And that's easy because I think about two things mostly in my whole, maybe three, I, you know, bumping around in my brain. But she can figure out what I'm thinking about most of the time. You perceive this one is through the Spirit, one with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed to Jesus' Spirit. Don't get, don't get that wrong. Jesus never cheated. He was just like us. And boy, that's good news. So he, the Holy Spirit reveals to him in his spirit. He knows what these guys are thinking, and he calls them out on it. Look at Jesus' question in verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? 
your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, now hit that pause button there for a minute. Of course it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you. Why? Can anybody see proof of that? Nope. That's all an inside job, isn't it? All right? What did, did those men bring him to get his, that man's sins forgiven? No. They brought him to get his legs fixed. They were tired of hauling his carcass around. You with me? But Jesus saw the deeper need. He said, your, your sins are forgiven you. Now, this is my question. Maybe my son can help me with this. Or some of you smarter people than me. Was he healed then? Or was he healed when Jesus commands it? I don't know. But he says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or arise, take up your bed and walk? Now, verse 10 is Jesus' command, letter E. But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And what were they reasoning? Who can forgive sins but? And Jesus said, you're right. And so, I, and I'm going to prove it to you. You ready? Y'all watching? Here it goes. He says, he turns to the paralytic. I say to you, here's his command. Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Three commands. Three commands. The, phys the forgiveness of sins is easy to say, but unprovable. The physical healing was only to confirm the forgiveness and Jesus' authority to do it. Don't miss it. But his command, arise, stand up, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. So first one, arise. It literally means stand up. Has this man ever, as far as we know, has he ever stood up in his life? This is the first time. Possibly the first time in his life he's going to stand. Like I said to Aubrey the other time, when Jesus heals, there's no need for rehab. Right? There's not six months of physical therapy. Your sins are forgiven. Get up. Arise. And brothers and sisters, well, we're going to get that in a second. Stand up. Look at the second command. This one is, I, I chewed on this for a minute, and I think I found something. Take up your bed. Now, it's not a bed like ours, right? The guy wasn't hauling around his mattress. <laughs> what was his bed? Hmm? It's a mat. All right? And they probably tied some the sash that they wore around the corners and dropped this guy down. By the way, how scary would that have been for that guy? <laughs> These jokers are dropping him through the roof, and he can't help himself. Whoa, okay. He had some faith, didn't he? At least in his buddies. Uh, yeah, take up your bed. Why? People who could not earn a living, how did they get their needs met? They begged. And the beggars became known by the mats that they laid on. The mat was his identity of who he used to be. And everybody was used to seeing him laying on the mat. And Jesus says, take that bed up. Roll that thing up and stick it under your arm. And then when you walk out, people are going to recognize that mat and say, you know, it looks just like the guy that used to lay on that mat. Amen? This was a testimony. 
This is a testimony. Look what God has done. I, this used to be my resting place. Now I got legs. I take myself where I want to go. And it's all because of a man named Jesus. Do you see it? Take up your bed. And then this one, go to your house. Go home and show and tell the good news. Isn't that great? That's what we're supposed to do. And then verse number 12, we see letter F, the man's obedience. Look at the man's obedience. Immediately. I know we haven't seen that word before. It's a new one for you. Immediately, he arose. I bet he did. Took up his bed and went out in the presence of them all. Brothers and sisters, that fella popped up out of there like toast out of the toaster, man. That joker jumped up. I bet he scared half them people to death. I mean, he popped up out of there. He rolled that bed up, stuck it under his arm, and I think he strutted through that crowd. He said, well, wait a minute. The crowd's so thick they couldn't even get in. Yeah, but he could get out. They parted like the Red Sea, man. As this lame man, this paralyzed man is strutting out, holding his bed that used to hold him. Woohoo! That's what God does. Amen. When your sins are forgiven and God takes that forgiveness and applies it to your physical deformity, everything gets healed. Right? And he struts his way home. I, can you imagine? I hope we have video review in heaven, like instant replay in the NFL. I hope we got that. I want to see and, and hear the audio of the discussion on the way home with his four buddies. Can you imagine? That must have been amazing. Oh boy, high fiving. Joking around, running, praising the Lord. Can you imagine his parents when he comes walking in the house if they weren't already there? What? How do you even process that? And then the last one, letter G, is the response of the people. Last half, he says, this guy just, this lame man just strutted by me holding his, holding his bed that used to hold him. So that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Now, if you got your own Bible and it's a good translation, what do you notice about the word anything? It's italicized. It means it's added for clarity. But the old timers used to have a saying, and it's really more, I think it'd be a better translation here. Literally, they're saying, We never saw the like of this. <laughs> right? To take that anything. We never saw the like of this before. I bet they hadn't. Right? And when it says they were amazed, the, the Greek word literally there means they were out of their mind. It, it blew their minds. The word is literally beside themselves. To be out of one's mind in shock. We never saw the like of this. Don't miss the point. Wasn't a big deal for the Creator to repair some paralyzed legs, to add muscle tone, balance, muscle memory when there was none. Jesus wasn't breaking a sweat to do that. Listen to me. But he sweat drops of blood and shed his own.
for that forgiveness of sins part. That's what we ought to focus on. And, if, and the forgiveness of sins part is an Aldous Huxley, the three men who died on that day. That's what we ignore, and that's Mark's whole point. But there is an application for us. I call it the so what. So what? There is something for us to do and to apply to our own lives today. So here's what I want you to do on your papers there. I want you to write down the names of three salty Jesus followers that are your friends and that are local. Don't even really have to be local, but it would help. Who are three people, you being number four, you see where I'm going with this, who are, uh, love Jesus and are doing their, their best to follow Him and, and want to do right, be right, and be a true disciple of Christ, walk in the dust of the King. I want you to write those three names down. Go ahead and do that right now. And then I want you to write the name of three lost people and start with your family. Who are three people that you know right now that God forbid they were to die today, they would split hell wide open? Some of those people live under your own roof right now. Some of them are your grandchildren. What's it going to take? Can we have the unity that these men had? Could, could you reach out to those three and say, hey, i got three names here. I need you to take a corner. we got to get this person to Jesus. we got to stop being okay with their lostness. It's not okay anymore. we got to wake up and realize that Jesus has the power to forgive their sins, and that's their greatest problem. And they need Christ. Wake up, church. we got to wake up. we got to get busy. Do you not realize... Some of our own children are on their way to an eternity in hell. And they're living like hell. And we see it. And yet, we are somehow numbed to the spiritual reality that's going on and playing out right underneath our own roof and in the roofs of our children with our own grandkids. We need to repent. And we need to go grab a corner. And start hauling people to Jesus. Amen? 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 Stood up here yesterday. And, and there's a young man right over here, hard to miss. I think he's six, seven or eight. Six foot seven, six foot eight. Grandson of Janelle. And I've always loved that kid. I've always had a heart to share the gospel with him. And I did yesterday in the sermon, but you know what? I need to grab a corner. And I need three of you to join me. Because that young man needs to be confronted with the gospel so that he can be healed. Right? And it's great to preach. I hope you know I love doing that. I love preaching Janelle's funeral because she was a salty, salty follower of King Jesus. She had the dust of the king all over her. Easy to preach the gospel, but I'm not sure everybody got it. I have no idea where that young man is. I have a suspicion. And he needs Christ, and we got to start grabbing corners. Do we care? Are we? What's wrong with us? R.C. Sproul was fond of saying, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> what's, I want to ask them, what's wrong with us? That we're okay with the lostness.
in our own family and amongst our closest friends. And I'm going to ask you to come pray about that this morning. I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to, the response song today, I'm just going to sing it. But as I'm singing this song, I want you to look at those names. You might even want to come and get on your knees before God and pray over those names. Father, I pray that you would, I don't know what you got to do. You know, here I'm thinking we need to grab corners and get people to Jesus. Maybe we need our corner grabbed. I don't know. But I know we need to wake up. And we need to understand the kingdom reality that there's so many lost people that you have strategically placed us in their lives and them in ours that we might grab corners and literally carry them to Christ and we do everything but. We'll talk about football. We'll talk about politics. But we never tell them about Jesus. And they're dying inside. And they need him. Would you drop your spirit in here today and break our hearts in Jesus' name? Amen. And may God cause us to go grab some corners and get some people to the king. Amen. He can do it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and may we not soon forget it. Would you stand with me? And let's sing that doxology as we leave here in hope and commitment this morning.